0: 2006, October 3rd, today is Lecture 10, Telling Time, and we'll begin in just a moment. We've now seen three basic cycles in the sky, and the combinations of those cycles into different timescales that operate in naked eye astronomy. We see the 24-hour timescale, which is set by the Earth rotating around its axis, and this causes all celestial objects to appear to rise in the east and set in the west from day to day. The second cycle is a reflection of the Earth's orbit around the sun. This causes the sun to slip slowly towards the east with respect to the background stars, roughly one degree per day along the path we call the ecliptic, this line that's tilted by 23 and a half degrees. And we looked at how there were four special places along the ecliptic, the solstices and the equinoxes. When the sun was either at its maximum or minimum declination, and when this um, sorry, maximum northern or southern declination, or when the sun was crossing the celestial equator. And those allowed us to give particular time, divide the year into four particular parts, and we noticed that at each time, because of differences of solar radiation in the length of the day, we get different climatic seasons when you live at middle latitudes. Yesterday and the day before, we saw the cycles of the moon. The moon is on an orbit tilted by five degrees with respect to the ecliptic. That takes about 27 and a half days to orbit once with respect to the stars, the sidereal period, Takes about 29 days in round numbers to orbit with respect to the Earth sun line. That is the time from new moon to the next new moon, defining the synodic period of 29 and a half days. That time scale sets a sort of an intermediate time scale between the length of the day and the length of the year set by the rotation of the Earth and the orbit of the Earth. So we have three motions working together the Earth turning on its axis the Earth orbiting around the Sun, and the Moon orbiting around the Earth, and all three of them dance together through the sky. Every now and then, there are chance alignments within that system, and we get eclipses of the Sun and Moon, when the Earth, Sun, and Moon exactly lie in in or very near the same plane. And that occurs only infrequently because these three hands of the clock have got to line up just right for that to happen. And I've used these words in a sentence, line up like hands on a clock. And that's actually a fairly loaded statement because in fact, telling time comes from these very observations of astronomical cycles in the sky. And so today's lecture, we're going to step back a little bit and look at one of the applications of the knowledge of these various cycles in the sky, namely our conventions for telling time. And tomorrow we'll talk about the longer term uh, convention application, the development of the calendar. So today we're going to talk about timekeeping. The first key idea for today is that timekeeping is astronomically based. All of timekeeping, except in the very most recent decades, has been based for thousands of years upon astronomical observations, and we're going to see a twofold, or sorry, threefold, as it turns out, division of time based on these astronomical cycles. The first of these are going to be the division of the year into the four main seasons: summer, winter, spring, and fall the solstices and equinoxes, and two other subdivisions that are the halfway points between these, the so-called quarter and cross-quarter days. And we're also going to see the division of those timescales into months and weeks. Where do those timescales come from? Why are they related to astronomical observations? We're then going to concentrate on the divisions of the day, the 24-hour cycle of rising and setting of the sun. We're going to review the rise of the use of hours, minutes, and seconds as a way of subdividing the day into smaller and smaller workable units. Introduce the concept of solar and sidereal time. We now have to combine the combination of the rotation of the Earth and the orbit of the Earth are going to give us two different cycles of way of measuring time, one with respect to the sun, the other with respect to the stars. And finally, I want to say at the end of the class a little bit about how we've taken this astronomically based timekeeping system, and we've slowly changed it over the last couple of, of centuries into a civil timekeeping system based on time zones and why that was developed, why we don't still measure sun using su- time using the sun and sundials. And we'll say a little bit about that and where that comes from at the end of class. So today is the astronomical origins of everyday ordinary things, today timekeeping. All of our timekeeping conventions are astronomically based. Even though it doesn't seem to to look that way when you look at the face of a a good old-fashioned dial clock, it's true, all of our ways of measuring time traditionally have been developed based on astronomical measurements because there are are very precise, repeatable cycles of time of phenomena in the sky that are easily measured without resort to computers or or even resort to writing. You can actually keep track of time in a pre-literate society. For example, the year that we define as the fundamental unit of time, everything is based on academic years and election years and fiscal years and things like this, is the time it takes the Earth to orbit once around the sun. Once you've gone once around the sun, astronomical phenomena, which constellations appear in the sky, how high the sun appears in the sky at noon, repeats itself. So it makes a natural repeating cycle by which to mark the passage of time. The month is derived from the cycle of lunar phases. This 28 day, 28, 29 day cycle from new moon to new moon is again highly repeatable and a way to mark time on slightly smaller than year timescales. on a time scale of in round number about 29 or 30 days. The day itself is another unit of time. Again, it's, it's even related to the biological experience of time because we've evolved in such a way that we, we are active during the day and we sleep at night. And so this 24-hour cycle of rising and setting in the sky, of the sun, rising and setting in the sky, sets another fundamental timescale. We do things day by day. We organize our days into weeks, our weeks into months. That forms one fundamental unit. Then we organize our months into years. And after that, we have to start introducing arbitrary divisions like centuries and millennia and things like that. We'll say more about that tomorrow. That's really dealing with the calendar. Today I'm concerned with the astronomical origins of all of these timekeeping systems and how they've developed into our modern ways of keeping time. Now the most, we'll start with the biggest divisions and kind of work our way down. The most fundamental division, the one that really probably people observed first and foremost were twofold. The phases of the moon are an obvious cycle. We have records. Going back, in fact, there are carvings on on reindeer bones, as we'll see tomorrow, that go back nearly 20,000 years where people were recording the cycle of the phases of the moon. It's recognizable to us today. But the other big division was the obvious cycle of the year. And for people living at middle latitudes, this would be what we refer to as the rhythm of the seasons. You can go back to Greek poetry and Babylonian and Egyptian poetry, and they talk about the cycle of the seasons, the harvest times, the winter time, and so forth. It's a very common theme. Each of these divisions of the year become naturally observable when you are in a particular season, not by judging the weather around you, but by judging the position of the sun in your sky. We've already seen four of these primary locations of the sun along its annual path along the ecliptic. This tilted 23.5 degree great circle relative to the equator. We have the days of equal night at the autumnal and vernal equinox when the sun is on the celestial equator. We have the point at which the sun is at its maximum northern declination, when the sun is very high in the sky at northern latitudes on the day of the summer solstice. And we have the time when the sun is at its maximum southern declination, when the sun is as low as it ever gets in the southern sky as viewed from northern latitudes in the middle of winter. And we talk about the winter solstice. Very approximately, in fact, these positions of the equinoxes and solstices divide the year the cycle of the sun moving around the ecliptic, which reflects the earth moving around the sun in its orbit, into four basic times. And these have been called traditionally in various times the quarter days, even though we don't really use that language anymore. And certainly in Anglo-Saxon tradition, people would talk about the quarter days, the equinoxes and the solstices. And we all mark them, and we even mark them to this day. You know, If you listen to the news and the weather, for example, on the day of the equinoxes or solstices, they say, today is the first day of fall, that's the autumnal equinox, the first day of summer, that's the summer solstice, and so on and so forth. We still retain to this day this sort of marking of passage of time by which seasons are occurring, which of the equinoxes and solstices are coming along. Now, the marking of time, usually we mark it without too much comment. For example, the other day the autumnal equinox occurred, it was sort of in the middle of the night on a Friday, and I made mention of it, people kind of nodded their head in class. But earlier societies, which were much more tied to these kinds of celestial events, actually celebrated holidays. So do we. We've just forgotten some of the origins of that. For example, the winter solstice, there were great holidays and feast days associated with them in various of the both pre-Christian and early Christian peoples of Europe. And I'll, I'll stick sort of European for the time being. Christmas, Yuletide, and the Roman Saturnalia were all marking the winter solstice. In fact, the celebration of Christmas has nothing to do with any actual historical judgment as to when the birth of Christ was in terms of a season. In fact, most people think it was actually probably in March. But they co-opted the pagan festivals of Tide and Saturnalia because people were partying then anyway. It was already on the calendar. We'll just take it over. And that way there was minimal disruption of the society if you had your party when the time was. It happens all the time. The vernal equinox occurs very close to the season of Easter, or, if you follow the Jewish calendar, Passover. The Saxons celebrated a feast, which basically is the return of the sun to the northern star. They named after a goddess, Estra, and Estra, of course, was slowly but surely warped into the word, in English, Easter. You don't use the word Easter in Latinate languages. It just happens to be a little accident of of word origins. The summer solstice, for those of you Shakespeare fans, a Midsummer Night's Dream. Midsummer referred to the time of the summer solstice. It was actually kind of a wild night um, in the Anglo-Saxon tradition. St. John's Eve is the Christianization of that, in, in particularly in the English lands. Where, again, you take over a pagan festival, you sacralize it, and tie it to the church calendar. And so we have a re- remembrance here, although we really don't remember it too much in the United States, but if you were in, in a citizen of the UK or one of the Commonwealth countries, you would know St. John's Eve. The Autumnal Equinox, the Welsh have a festival called Mabon, there's also Michaelmas, again it's a, it's a more of a British um, idea, but these festival days are actually a remembrance of festival days that occurred at the Autumnal Equinox. So. Not as commonly celebrated today in sort of in, in America, uh, we typically know about Easter and Christmas time, but have long since forgotten perhaps that those are actually tied to really ancient festivals of the winter solstice and the vernal equinox we 've just forgotten the pagan roots that 's two thousand years ago in round numbers we 've really forgotten that, but that 's really why they occur at the times they do why they 're tied to the times they are. Passover is explicitly tied to a lunar calendar and to the seasons in the Jewish calendar. And since Easter, the, resurrect, the Feast of the Resurrection of Christ in the Christian calendar, is tied to the Feast of Passover because of the crucifixion narratives, ties those two holidays together, unwittingly tying them to astronomical observations. But there's another division of the year because, let's face it, if you only party every six months, your society is boring. And so as a consequence, people made a second subdivision of the year by defining the cross-quarter days. These are the days which occur between the equinoxes and the solstices, when the sun is halfway on its travel between the principal points. And the traditional layout of the cross-quarter days starts by looking at the winter solstice, when the sun is as low as it gets in the sky, is kind of the traditional beginning of the festival cycle. So you want to sort of mark the point where the sun is now well on its way back into the northern sky, at northern latitudes that back into the northern sky means the steady approach of spring. Later, you want to mark the time between the equinox and halfway to the highest point in the sky is the second cross-quarter day, which occurs between the vernal equinox and the summer solstice. The third cross-quarter day between the summer solstice and the autumn equinox, as your sun is beginning its descent towards winter. And finally, the fourth cross-quarter day between the autumnal equinox and the winter solstice marking the time when you're starting to head into the depth of winter. Now in reality, the way the seasons work, winter really occurs between the fourth and first cross-quarter days. The long period of spring is really kind of between the first and second. Summer lasts between the second and third, and autumn really lasts between the third and fourth. So it's another way of marking the beginning of the traditional seasons. And We have a lot of holidays and festivals that are remembrances of these times that are celebrated at odd dates in between. For example, on the second of February, Groundhog Day in the Christian tradition, Candle Mass or Saint Brigid's Day, Imbolc, which is a Celtic festival, and Setsubun, which is a Japanese festival marking the beginning of spring. Those are celebrated on the second to the sixth of February in round numbers. They're celebrated on the third cross-quarter day. That's where Groundhog Day comes from. It's an ancient remembrance of marking the passage of the sun. May Day. Celtic Feast of Beltane, this was a, a day of, of a rather wild fertility festival, occurs around May 1st, is marking of the cross-quarter day between the vernal equinox and the summer solstice. It turned out to be about the time when summer really started getting going, right? The warm weather really starts showing up around the 1st of May at middle latitudes. In August, the cross-quarter day between the summer solstice and the autumnal equinox is still celebrated, but mostly in, in the tradition of Welsh and Celtic lands, Lamas or Lugnasa. Many of you might have read the book or read the play, heard the play, for example, Dancing at Lugnasa. Lugnasa is not a place. Lugnasa is a festival, the games of Lug. He was a Celtic god, a rather nasty one at that. Um, this was marking about the time that the harvest would begin in the warm climates, and it marked the cross-quarter day between the summer solstice and the descent towards autumn. And finally, coming up, the cross-quarter day between the autumnal equinox and the winter solstice is Salmon, which we nowadays celebrate on the 31st of October as Halloween, All Hallows' Eve, or in the Christian tradition the next day, the Feast of All Saints. So the Halloween, why do we have this sort of giving out candy to the neighborhood kids' festival in the end of October? It's an ancient remembrance of the cross-quarter day, the beginning of the sun in... Sun's descent into the lowest part of its passage where it would spend a quarter of the year in the shortest shortest days at middle latitudes. And so it was a time of growing darkness, a time when the spirits came out. So buried in some of our traditional holidays is an ancient remembrance of watching the calendar of the year by watching the motion of the sun across the sky. Now doing these calculations can be fairly intricate. And there are lots of ways to observe this. The, Indi- the Native Americans who lived in the area around Cahokia in Illinois built large structures which allowed them to watch when the sun rose and set. Their are Indian mounds out here towards um, Newark and towards Fort Ancient down towards Cincinnati which actually are set up on astronomical grounds to watch both moon rises and sunrises and sunsets on various days marking the passages of the solstices and equinoxes. Stonehenge, which was not built by the Druids, the Druids were latecomers, they came along a lot later. Stonehenge is very ancient. It probably built sometime between the third and second millennium BC in England on the Salisbury Plain. It was a very mysterious place of standing stones in a circle until people began to measure out how those stones were aligned and realized that Stonehenge can be viewed as a gigantic astronomical calculator. It's an observatory of sorts. In fact, there are certain very key alignments where the sun rises above a very specific stone on the day of the summer solstice. So you didn't have to rely on calendars. You didn't have any calendars. How do you mark the passage of time? You set up in your society, within your, the place where you live, a stable place of observation where you can watch the sun go through its motions along the ecliptic and you mark it by rising and setting because it's a very good reference to your horizon and watch when the sun rises at its furthest north point through the year. That's the day of the summer solstice. You align a stone with that, the sun will rise above this stone on exactly that day. Every other day, the sun will rise to the south of that line and you know it's not that day. But you might have a stone aligned with an equinox or with the other solstice, as for the south position. And so by watching when the sun rises and counting the days, you can exactly mark the festivals. And if they're important for your ritual life, you want to make certain that you appease the gods by celebrating that day exactly on the right day. And So you get the calculation right because it matters to you. We found astronomical alignments with the sun in every major settled civilization, including some that you wouldn't think of as civilized, for example, Native American groupings, in the middle of the United States, even they, who were largely nomadic, had some settled cities, and in those cities, in every single one of them, we find astronomical observation systems for observing solstices and equinoxes. It's very important to mark the passage of time. The sun is the way you do it. But an eightfold division of the year into quarter and cross-quarter days is pretty good for major festivals, but a kind of is not terribly useful when you're trying to organize society. A civilization grew to the point that you started having to organize resources and organize people, labor, armies, whatever. You needed to have finer divisions of time to plan out your year. Planning things out on a kind of a two and a half month, two month cycle isn't really going to cut it, so you need something a little bit finer. And so there's another way in which to divide up the year. And one of the ways to divide the year is divided into 12. And the reason for 12 has to do with the cycle of lunar phases. There are about 12.4 lunar months, the cycle of new moon to new moon, embedded within the year. It's not exactly 12. So if you kept to a strictly lunar calendar, you'd slide with respect to the year and the seasons. But it does give you a basic division. You watch a cycle of the lunar phases, you're approximately one twelfth of the year. In fact, the word month is derived from the word moon, if you will. We don't have a division into 12 months. We have a division into 12 moons. Basically, the year is divided into lunar cycles, and we call those the months. But even the month is a little too coarse for the organization of some societies, and so various civilizations in the past subdivided the month further. Sometimes it was 10, sometimes it was 5, but over time, we've basically... Converged on a division into seven weeks of seven day, uh, into weeks of seven days each. Why seven? Well, it's really rather an arbitrary number, except that if you look in the sky, there are seven moving bodies, seven moving stars, or large bright points of objects of light, which do not follow the simple rising and setting of the stars. They are the sun and the moon and then the five classical visible planets, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. So therefore seven became this kind of magic number to certain societies, in particular the Romans, and so they decided to mark time as a reflection of the moving objects in the sky by dividing the month into weeks of seven days. There's also another nice coincidence that occurs that again was not lost on anybody who could count, 7 times 4 is 28, is approximately one lunar month. An even multiple of 7. So of course, wow, how that's great. 28 is not divisible by 3, it is divisible by 2, but divisible by 4 into 7, and there are 7 moving planets. Ooh, cosmic. And they obviously made that connection, and that's where the major division comes from. In fact, this is embedded in the names for the days of the week if you speak a Latinate language. If you were a Roman, you would call the days of the week Solis, Luni, Martis, Mercurii, Jovis, Veneris, Saturni. Sun, Moon, Mars, Mercury, Jupiter, Venus, Saturn. In Anglo-Saxon, we have Sunday and Monday, Moon Day, Sun and Moon. And then we have five of the Saxon gods Tue, Woden, Thor, Friah, Saturn. Tuesday, Woden's day, Thor's day, Friah's day, Saturn's day. Oh, that's a little Roman who kind of snuck in there after the Roman uh, conquest of the Gaulish and Saxon peoples. So buried in the names for Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday is the mixed heritage of the Roman and Saxon past of the English-speaking world. If you're Spanish, Domingo, Sunday, the Lord's day. There's the Christian path. But then, sneaking in is that old pagan path ag- passed again. Lunes, lune. Martes, martis. Mercuris, Mercury, Jueves, jovis. Viernes, veneris. Sabato, saturni. If you speak a Latinate language, we could throw up French here. Throw up Romanian, the Latinate version of Romanian, you would have buried in there, with the exception of Sunday, the names of the seven moving bodies. So buried in our language is the history of the astronomical origins of our day names. Once you've got the day division into the weeks, and we, again we we inherit from the Romans the sevenfold division of the of the of the week into days, the day itself can be divided up further, and this is the finest levels of timekeeping that we have. Nowadays, in the modern age, we divide the day into 24 hours, and the day begins at midnight. So we start with zero hours at midnight, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., and then here in the United States, we have this funny convention that we decide that 12 is really a cool number, so we wrap the clock on 12, we go from 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 12 noon, and then we start counting over again the first hour of the afternoon, the second hour of the afternoon, and so forth. So we go through one again. If you were a European, you would count on a 24-hour clock. So 7 in the evening, oh no, I'm going to get this wrong, is 19 hours. The military uses that time, so there's absolutely no ambiguity. You don't have to say a.m. A. and p, m. But this 24-hour division, which we've known forever, has not always been the case. In most societies, the day began at dawn, not at midnight. Why have the day begin in the middle of the night when most people are asleep? This is a modern convention. The day traditionally begins at dawn for a lot of people. There is also a tendency to equally divide the day and the night into 12 hours. Now, the problem with this, of course, is, as we've seen, the length of the day depends upon the time of the year. And that means in societies that divided the day into equal hours of 12 hours of day and 12 hours of night, the length of the hour was different depending upon the, upon the seasons, except on the equinoxes. The Romans did this. There are these funny references, which if you know, know astronomy, talking about, one of the, one of the Roman poets talks about in the army how the soldiers would grumble when they had to march a summer's hour. It's because the day is longer during the summertime, so an hour was a longer period of time and it was a further march. Whereas you talk about the fleeting hour of a winter's night spending time with one's lover. Well, that's because the winter has the shortest nights of the year and the hours are shorter. So buried inside these odd poetic references is a remembrance of the fact that the Romans divided sunset to sundown into 12 hours of day, and then the nighttime from sunset to sunrise was another 12 hours of night. And the reason for this is because the primary tool that they had for measuring time was to look at the shadow of the sun cast by a stick stuck in the ground, namely a sundial. Since the sun is the, if you will, the big hand on your clock and you watch the shadow cast by the little gnomon or time teller, then it makes us even division fairly good. Here's a, a common, very fanciful looking sundial photograph You look at the shadow of the sun and you see where it lands at various divisions. These finer divisions between the hours would have been unknown to Roman periods. And you can see how the shadow is divided into hours of day and night. But this is a modern sundial and doesn't have the even 12 divisions because this is a sundial designed to work from a northern latitude with a modern 24-hour even hour day cycle. If you want to get a look at a modern sundial, you can go down on the oval. There's a beautiful sundial off of Phoenix Plaza down by the main library. It's one of the honor societies on campus. And you've got this beautiful elaborate sundial. At this location right here is where this little post would be, which would cast the shadow of the sun on the right day. Of course, Phoenix Plaza is now surrounded by big trees, and so the sundials and shadow rendering it kind of useless. And I've been asking around as to where that dial pointer went, because I actually wanted to see how well it worked. Nobody could tell me, but um, Beer has been implicated. So it just seems to vanish, and they just sort of said a few years. Oh, to hell with this! So, all through a lot of period, with the use of sundials, you divided the day into 12 hours and the night into a similar set of 12 hours, and the length of the hour would change with the season. Longer hours in the summer, shorter hours in the winter, is reckoned during the day. This remained until about the beginning of the 14th century AD with an innovation of the invention of the mechanical clock. With a mechanical clock, if you think about it, to build a mechanism which will keep unequal hours is really, really complicated. It's just a whole lot simpler to build an even number of teeth around your main drive gear and have the dial hand that marks out the hours go once around every 24 hours and just keep an even division. And so by 1300, to have, make certain that the clock's read true in the morning, they said, ah, let's just drop this whole uneven day-night stuff and mandate an equal hour. It makes for a really simple clock design, and then people kind of agree upon the time. So the arise of the even hour that we know today is an artifact of an introduction of a new technology for measuring time That separates the timekeeping from the direct observation of the sun, as in the case of a sundial. So the use of equal hours is the introduction of mechanical timekeeping. Now the medieval clocks built in the 14th century and on were really, really big and really, really complex. You needed a lot of infrastructure to run these things. As a consequence, unless you were phenomenally wealthy, an entire town had to get together to build one clock. And if you're going to build that clock, you might as well put it in the top of a tower where everyone can see it and make it pretty useful to everybody. And so as a consequence, any city of any note was noted for its clock tower, where they built the mechanical clock, keeping out the even hours. And this led to a standardization of timekeeping. You wanted to travel from one town to another, you wanted to read that clock in the same way. It just wouldn't do if in Turin they had a 12-hour clock, in Rome they had a 24-hour clock, and in Paris they had a 10-hour clock. There's no point in that. So people drew on this natural 24 hour division and standardized very quickly onto a standard way of marking time. Personal timepieces, the idea of having a watch in your pocket is a later invention as miniaturization of clocks began to become more common. Here's a, an absolutely beautiful example of one of these city clocks. This is a 14th century clock built in 1344 on the Palazzo del Capitano in Padua, Italy. It's an absolutely gorgeous clock. Notice a couple things. One is the design of the clock. All the astronomical origins are here. These are the representation of the constellations of the zodiac, the moon, the sun, and this rather complicated moving dial, which is actually keeping the time of the year and the month buried in this beautiful mechanical clock. Who else can notice that, for example, the keeping of time? There's the sun on the hour indicator. It keeps a 24 hours of even divisions around there. You can see the even points of the Ro- Roman numbers here and the stars of the sun moving across the sort of turning sky. Beautiful clock. Anyone notice what's missing? The minute hand, yeah. <laughs> this thing's only got an hour hand. That's all they measured. The first clocks only had an hour hand. It only marked the hours. And you would guess the inter-hour period by whether it was between various ticks or not. In fact, the most sophisticated medieval clocks of the period only marked out every 15 minutes. It just quartered the hour into 15 minutes. In fact, they didn't even talk about 15 minutes, they talked about a quarter of an hour. Ever wonder where that word is? Quarter to, half past, quarter past? That's all a remembrance of medieval clocks which only had an hour hand. In fact, that situation remained until the year 1500. In 1500, up till that time, clocks only kept time to the quarter of an hour. The further division was needed when clocks became more sophisticated. As clocks became more mechanically complex, they divided the hour into 60 minutes and the minute into 60 seconds. They borrowed the language of angular measurement from Claudius Ptolemy. One degree is 60 minutes of arc. 60 minutes of arc divided into 60 seconds of arc. They said, so, well, as long as we're measuring angle meaning measuring a dial moving around the sky, will keep a remembrance of the fact that timekeeping is watching the angle of the sun in the sky, and will embed that language in our division of the hour into the minute and the minute into the second. The division of the, the introduction of the minute was made possible by the use of a regular escapement, of a falling weight escapement in clocks, and the division of the second really was a later invention from the year 1670 or so, It had to wait until the invention of the pendulum escapement, the use of a swinging weight on an arm. In fact, a 39-inch long pendulum has exactly a swing of one second. It had to wait until 1670 because the pendulum was invented by Galileo Galilei, the famous astronomer we're going to meet in a couple of weeks. And it was only with the application of the pendulum to the pendulum clock after the death of Galileo that people decided to introduce the second. And 39 inches is a nice convenient length for a floor standing clock, and so it made a very natural division. Now that gives us our basic mechanicals of the clock. How do we actually measure time? Well, let's step back a bit and remember that whether I'm using a sundial, a medieval hour clock or a modern Mickey Mouse watch with an hour a minute and second hand, the time ultimately was related to where the sun was in the sky and the day is divided up by how the Earth rotates around its axis. The first major way of measuring time is to simply watch the sun. And we measure the length of the day by watching the sun from our location. So I stand here in Columbus, I face south, and I look out and I look at where the sun is now crossing my meridian, that north-south line that goes through my zenith, I see the sun, right in the middle of the sun, crosses my meridian. I might put a stick on the ground and watch when the shadow falls exactly north-south, and I say, noon. And I wait. I come back 24 hours later, and the sun comes back on my meridian. So I define local solar noon is when the sun is on my meridian at my location. I then define the mean solar day is the time from noon until the following noon. So the time between successive noons is when the earth is rotated around and the sun has come to exactly the same place on the sky. Now noon, when I say noon, depends upon my longitude. If a person is located 15 degrees to the east of me, the earth is rotating towards the east, they will see noon one hour earlier than I do because the sun will be overhead at their position one hour sooner. I'm to the west. It takes me another 15 degrees or one hour of rotation to get the sun right on my north-south line. If I go a 15 degrees of latitude further to the west, I say, noon. It's not going to be another hour until sometime in the middle of Illinois or someplace, someone there says, no, it's not noon yet. I've got another hour to go. And then an hour later, they'll look up and say, yep, sun's on my meridian, noon here. So the Prisci- the impression of a local noon depends upon your location in longitude. This is the first, indic- first thing we've seen of an astronomical observation that depends critically on the longitude you're observing from. That's why measurement of longitude is tied up with the ability to measure time. So here's the way we can illustrate this with a picture. A mean solar day, the sun is overhead at noon. I wait one day later, 24 hours later. Noon occurs when the sun is along that line. So noon to noon defines the mean solar day. But notice I've thrown the other motion in here, and I've exaggerated it for for convenience here on the picture. While the Earth is going through one day of rotation, it is simultaneously moving one degree along its orbit. And so I have to swing a little bit more to get back into line with the sun. That implies that there's a second way to measure time not if you're a day creature, but if you're a night person. We call the time measured with respect to the stars, not with respect to the sun, sidereal time. Sidereal from the Latin word, situs, meaning the stars. Each day, as the Earth rotates through one day, it moves approximately one degree along its orbit. 360 degrees in a circle, 365 days in a year. So it's approximately less than a degree. So relative to the stars, If I make you all the stars there, and I turn around once, I come back over here. At 24 hours, I'm back with respect to the stars, but the sun has moved. So I've got to come back into alignment by moving an extra four minutes for the sun to come back on my meridian. That's a lot of words, but we'll show a picture here in just a second. The consequence of this is the stars appear to rise four minutes earlier each night measured against a civil or solar clock. So if I keep time by a sundial, and I say, what time does Sirius, the bright star in the, in the in this winter sky, rise? I say, when's it gonna rise again tomorrow night? It will be four minutes earlier, because in that day I've moved one degree along the orbit and I've slightly changed the perspective. In pictures, here I am at noon. I rotate around once. With respect to the stars, I have to move a little extra to swing back into position. So everything's moving in a right-hand rule. I start out moving, the sun is there, you're the stars. I swing around, star day, a little extra to bring myself back in alignment with the sun. So the sidereal day is four minutes shorter than the solar day. So if I'm a star watcher, an astronomer, I have to keep sidereal time on the clocks in my observatory, whereas if I'm a person who's working days and nights, I keep time by the sun. This is kind of a funny thing for an astronomer to do. In the old days, before there were lots of computers at the observatories, like when I got started, you could actually buy sidereal time watches and sidereal time clocks to keep track of the time with respect to the stars to point your telescope. And observatories would have two clocks, one keeping civil solar time and the other one keeping sidereal time. Nowadays, we do the trick with computers and we hide it from sight. There's one other piece of the game. And it was Back when I talked about solar time, I said, when I say it's noon, someone 15 degrees to the east says, no, 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 it's 1 o'clock, because it's an hour past noon. And a person 15 degrees to the west of me says, no, it's not, it's 11 o'clock, it's not 12 yet, it's not going to be 12 for another hour. What time it is with respect to the sun depends upon my longitude. And for most of human history, that was okay, because the distance I could travel was limited by how fast I could walk or how fast a horse could run. If you were at sea, you really didn't move all that much faster. the so ships weren't that efficient back then. So the change in longitude per day was so slow, you just sort of measured noon and measured time by the sun because you were in communication with nobody but the jerk next to you. So you didn't have to keep time over long distances. That changed with the rise of two technologies, railroad and telegraph, which bridged long distances across longitudes very, very fast. You have to coordinate interstate railroad traffic because a train can actually travel 15 or 30 degrees of longitude in a day. Telegraph stations could link the east and west coasts of the United States nearly instantaneously. How do you agree upon the times that you send messages between each other? You have to have a way to coordinate communication. Furthermore, small differences in local time, like from one side of Ohio to another, begin to matter. The train's gonna arrive at noon. Well, my noon is not the same as the noon when the train left the station in Pittsburgh. So how do you sort that all out? Well, the way you do that, in the 19th century, this became so unsupportable. There was an innovation in Canada and the United States, countries that span a large range of longitude, to divide the Earth into time zones of 15 degrees apiece keep time with respect to the reference longitude within there, and throw away the system of local time. And so now we have the division of the Earth into 24 zones of time. We keep the borders from crossing each other so cities aren't on different timescales, and buried within this is a try to reconcile mechanical clocks with the motion of the sun and the means of long-distance transport and communications. So we've slowly but surely, by the 21st century, begun to divorce timekeeping from the age-old clock of the sun following in the sky. Any questions? Okay, I will see you all tomorrow then. Hmm.